have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 14, please. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, again, we'll read the whole chapter, uh, 33 verses. I point that out simply because um, I am going to ask you, if you're physically able to do so, to please stand with me one more time because we want to honor God's word as we hear it read. And, and so please stand with me. 2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 reading the entire chapter, all 33 verses. Hear the word of the Lord that's given to you and I this morning. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, I pray you, feign or pretend yourself to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and anoint your, do not anoint yourself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time, that has, that had a long time mourned for the dead, and come to the king and speak on this manner to him. So Joab put the words into her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face and, and to the ground and did uh, obeisance and said, pay respect, and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What ails you? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and my husband is dead, and your handmaid had two sons, and they, and they, and they two strove toward, together in the field, and there was none to part them. But the one smote or struck the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against your handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, and that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. And we will destroy the heir also. And so they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. And the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give charge concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My, my, king, my lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king in, in his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whoso, who, Whosoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. Then said she, I pray you, let the king remember the, remember the Lord your God, and that you would not allow the revengers of blood to destroy any more. Lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of your son fall to the earth. And then the woman said, Let your handmaid, I pray you, speak one word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then have you thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king does speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king does not bring home again his banished. For we must needs die, and there and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither does God respect any person, yet does he devise means, yet that his banished be not expelled from him. Now, therefore, that I come to speak of this thing to my lord the king, it is because the people have made me afraid. And your handmaid said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of, the, out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together with the inheritance of God. Then your handmaid said, The word of my lord the king shall now be comfortable. For as an angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and bad. Therefore, therefore the Lord your God will be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Hide not from me, I pray you, the thing that I shall ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, Is not the hand of Joab with you in all of this? 
And the woman answered and said, As your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab, he bid me, and he put all of these words into the mouth of your handmaid. To bring about this form of speech, has your servant Joab done this thing? And my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. And the king said to Joab, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found grace in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So, Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. But in all Israel there was none that to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty from the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head. There was no blemish in him. And when he polled his head, for it was every year's end that he polled it, that he shaved it. Because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he shaved it. He weighed the hair of the head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. And to Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of fair countenance or beautiful appearance. So Absalom dwelled two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab and to have sent him to the king. But he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go, set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom to his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent to you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Let's pray together. Father, as we now look at our text... We pray for great wisdom and understanding. Help us to deal rightfully with this text. Help us to see ultimately how this text points us to Christ and how it applies to our lives. And So God, we are your sheep under your care and in your pasture. May you guide us and guard us and direct us for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The American Civil War was, on so many levels, a very tragic reality. It divided house against house, brother against brother, father against son, sons against fathers. It was a great and tumultuous time. I read of a young man by the name of George Henry Thomas who was born in the state of Virginia. He graduated with honors from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Um, When the war erupted in 1861, all of Thomas's house decided to be loyal only to the South. Whereas to his family's surprise, Thomas alone out of his entire family decided to remain loyal to the Union. And he fought for the Union, was a successful commander in the Union, but his family disavowed him. That is, they rejected him completely when they learned of his decision. As a matter of fact, 
his entire family was never reconciled to, to young George Henry Thomas until the end of their lives because they chose to be, they chose, they chose this separation. They chose to allow this to separate their family. And it's a sad reality. It's a, it's a very sad reality. But this morning, in a, in a different sense, we do see a family divided. But in this, we also have the danger of reconciling with someone without repentance. We have the danger of reconciliation without repentance at all. See, God instituted the family in the Garden of Eden, and by doing so, he decreed that human beings were not created to be solitary creations, but were designed for relationships. And so Adam and Eve needed each other, and they thrived on one another's companionship in life and raised a family and their family raised a family and so on and so forth. And God added this relationship and created this family structure. And therefore, I mean, God addressed this family relationship um, throughout Scripture over and over again. And we will see the dangers over and over again throughout Scripture, but here in our text before us, the dangers of, of reconciliation without repentance. It is a dangerous game we play when we do not insist when someone has honestly done wrong and sinned, not for them not to own their sin and for our reconciliation to be based on truth, but instead based on a lie. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to focus on, on uh, some truths, two, a couple of truths this morning that I think shows the, the difficulties and the dangers of reconciling without repentance. The first truth is found in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 14. And it's simply this, a faulty plan for reconciliation. A faulty plan for reconciliation. You see, as we, as we open in chapter 14, for chapter 14 does not exist in a vacuum. Chapter 14, right, because uh, the chap- chapters and verses have not always existed. They were placed into our, uh, into our Bibles uh, at a, some later point. And so uh, years ago, this would have just been read as one giant story from chapter 13 to chapter 18. And that's exactly what we have going on here. From chapter 13 to chapter 18, we have the, the reality of, of the refusal to deal with sin and the foundation that it lays for every event that proceeds from it. David refuses to deal with the sin of Amnon, with, uh, with his sister, with raping his, his half-sister. Uh, Absalom then kills Amnon because David refuses to act, and now Absalom is banished, and, or Absalom is then banished, and uh, now we have deceit, and we have all kinds of crazy things going on here. The refusal to deal with sin has laid the foundation for every event that's going to unfold. And brothers and sisters, whether or not we know it, when we refuse to deal with sin biblically in our lives, in our hearts, or in the, the church, or in our family's uh, uh, case, we, we play a dangerous game because we lay the foundation for events that we may never even have meant to lay the foundation for. But every action has repercussions. And the foundation here that is laid is a faulty one. It's a faulty one. Why? Well, because we see very quickly who does the plan originate with. Well, it's not God. 
because it's not based on truth and it's not based in re it's not based on the reality of truth what is it based on well it is based upon chapter 14 verse 1 now joab so the foundation was faulty because this whole plan originated with joab not god joab was in truth he was a cunning conniving uh not a very good person he really was, and he was the commander of the army, but we have seen over and over again, and we'll see um, at a later point, how, how uh, Joab is very cunning, he's very crafty, he's very conniving, he, 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 he is very politically motivated, he kills people who he's afraid is going to take his positions, and so he, he slaughters people that he is a, uh, he's afraid that it's going, to, uh, uh, it's going to take the position of power from him. He's a very cunning, crafty person, and here he is just simply showing his craftiness. And in reality, Joab, along with the woman of Tekoa, um, as we'll see, are actually pitted in the same vein, in the same framework as Jonadab in the previous chapter. Jonadab was said to be a very crafty man. Here, Joab and the woman of Tekoa are mentioned to be the same, crafty, cunning, deceitful. And so the foundation was faulty because the foundation for this reconciliation it didn't start with God and it didn't start with his word and it didn't start with his truth. It started in the cunning, crafty heart and mind of Joab. And there's an interesting translation here in chapter 14. There's a, there's a translational issue here because it says, Now Joab the son of Zeruiah perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. But in reality, the, the, word can also, the, the, the word can also be translated against Absalom, right? So I think the New King James actually translates this the best by simply translating the word was concerned. As concerned, why? Because the word really means to be conflicted about. It really means to vacillate back and forth between two positions. A position of being against him and then being a position of caring about him. And so this word really does have this, this, this issue of David was unsettled in his heart and his mind concerning his son Absalom. Had I done the right thing? No, I think I have done the right thing. And so he deserves what he gets, but he's my son. And oh, my son, I love my son. But no, 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 God's word is right, and I have to follow God's word. And that's really the idea here of this word toward. It really has the idea of being concerned about, being conflicted over Absalom. He is, after all, his son, and yet he loves the Lord and has to follow God's commandments. He wants to see his son. He wants, he desires to see his son, but he realizes he can't see his son because of the way his son has acted and has disregarded the law of God and is rightful. He is right in having exiled Absalom. Although, I will say this, by right, Absalom should have died. Joab hatches this plan to execute to, 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 without ever seeking God's wisdom. As a matter of fact, as you read this passage, the Lord is mentioned, but it's never mentioned in the sense that anybody ever asked God anything. Nobody asks God his opinion. No one asks God. No one seeks God. Everybody's just doing what, they, what their heart tells them to do. And my brothers and sisters, this is a very dangerous thing when you start following your heart. 
Walt Disney is, uh, theology is very dangerous. Follow your heart. Uh, no, no, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, the Bible tells us. And so we need to be careful. We need to be very careful about seeking after the Lord the way God has revealed to us. No one is asking God, what does God say here? Everybody is saying, well, how, how can this work out best for me? And in the midst of all of this, we have to ask ourselves, what does Joab get out of this? Why, Joab, would you do this? Is it just because you see the, heart, the, the king's heart is conflicted about Absalom? I don't think so. Because later on in the chapter, you'll see that there is a political alliance that at some point has been formed, perhaps through letters and, and correspondence, or the text doesn't tell us, but somehow a, a reality of, a, of, a, of a, uh, an alliance is formed between Joab and Absalom. And so Joab, being politically motivated, being, being motivated in his expedience of, of, of this plan, this plan being purposeful and intention and intentional in his plan, right? He seeks to do good. Now, was having said all that, does that mean that Joab, that Joab's plan wasn't well intentioned? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And at this point, I think this definitely applies. Because the method of reconciliation was also faulty. Because notice, notice what Joab does. Joab doesn't go to the king himself. And he doesn't say, hey, king, David, my commander, my chief, my lord, my king. You know, I've been thinking about this. And I really think we should consider, you should consider pardoning Absalom and bringing him back. Joab doesn't do that. What does Joab do? Well, Joab does what Joab does best. He goes, finds a very wise woman, right? Now, the question is, why a woman and not a man? I think there's a couple different things. We'll not go down that rabbit track. We'll let that rabbit run its race. But he does choose a woman, right? Uh, He does choose a woman and an older woman. And he does give her all of these words. And he tells her, okay, so this is what I want you to do. And so Joab plans the reconciliation carefully, or this, 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 this method for ultimately pushing the envelope of, of the reconciliation very carefully. But yet it was faulty because, and we might say, well, but now how is this different really than, than Nathan's point? Well, Nathan wasn't using deception. Nathan the prophet wasn't using deception when he confronted David. And the prophets, though the prophets certainly use stories, you know, like Nathan throughout the, throughout the, the, the Bible and the Old Testament, the one thing you will never find the prophets doing is deceiving. They don't go around deceiving people, at least not true prophets of Yahweh and true prophets of God. Right? The false prophets, they deceive. The false prophets give false lies. The false prophets give false testimony, whereas true prophets give true Testimony and true meaning to God's word. And so Joab uses deception. I do think it's interesting, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story, uh, a made-up story, obviously, between a, a chief demon and his underling, and he simply makes this interesting, uh, um, I think this interesting uh, thought. Uh, he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. And Joab, for Joab and Absalom, that's the spiral that they're in. A gradual descent into judgment. A gradual descent into great judgment. Joab will ultimately not be executed until after David's death, but Joab will end up being executed later. 
And Absalom will, of course, end up by being executed by Joab, of all people. Cunning, conniving person that he is. And so the plan in verses 4 through 20 is ultimately executed here for this faulty reconciliation, right, by going to Tekoa. By the way, if you don't know where that's at, it's a town of Judah, about 10 to 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, Its claim to fame would be the fact that it is the hometown of the prophet Amos. But he goes, he sends to Tekoa, and he brings this woman. Now, she's called a wise woman here in our text, but the idea really seems to be comparing her again to Jonadab when it calls Jonadab wise as well. The, the, the idea here is not so much that they were wise as much as they were very good at being crafty. They were very good at being crafty. And so she's called wise here. Right? Crafty. Because she's the perfect actor. She plays her part and plays it well. She gets paid by, by Joab to, to tell the king the story. And she gets paid by Joab. He tells her what to say. He tells her how to say it. He tells her how to, how to look and the appearance. And He tells her, I mean, after all, she's the perfect actor. She's a widow. So she, automatically she's going to invite sympathy. She lives a distance from Jerusalem. So it would have made it difficult for them to inquire about whether or not this fakes of this, the, the facts of this case were actually true. She wore clothes, clothes of mourning, which heightens the effect, right? And she didn't, she didn't uh, put oil on her face, right? Which in a very dry land like Israel would have quickly dried out the land, sort of accentuated her mourning and her stress that she was under. Uh, and so uh, she's, she brings her case. She brings her case th- uh, that is similar, but not too similar to a- Absalom and Abnon because she doesn't want David's suspicions to be aroused quite yet. She appears to be a mourner, right? She has a mourning apparel, no oil, um, and, and she, she acts as if she's mourning for the dead. And she has the perfect situation placed before, placed before David, right? She comes telling him the story of how one son rose up against another son and killed them, and, and now the family is demanding that the son who killed him wasn't, will not die. The question becomes, all of this smacks of... Of, of a lack of, of inquiring of the, the Pentateuch because God had given uh, the, the cities of refuge, right, for tra- tra- cases to be tried within the cities of refuge. Uh, and, and so why is she coming to the king? Well, she's coming to the king, one, because David has opened his court to his people. He wants his people to know that he loves them and cares for them. But this case to, to proceed and ultimately fulfill the goal that he has, that, that Joab has for it, he needs, a, he needs a direct appeal to the king. And he needs the king to, to, to ask the question. So she comes seeking mercy. And David, just like David, gives a good and righteous verdict. But in giving a good and righteous verdict, in chapter, in chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, what do we have? She springs the perfect trap. And she says, O king... Please don't be angry and let me talk to you some more. Sure, absolutely. King, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Why? Because you have exiled, you have exiled your son Absalom. And not only does she do this, but she does this in two different ways. She first, she she 
accuses him of causing God's people great harm by exiling Absalom. Right? She literally says, if you can show mercy to my, to my banished son, who is unknown to you, why won't you show the same mercy to your banished son? Right? And, and by the way, King David, what happens if you were to die and Absalom's in exile? He's the next in line. And since God finds a way to mercifully bring back the banished, why can't you? Because after all, if something were to happen to you, King David, and Absalom's in exile, oh my, we're, you're going to harm Israel. But then she turns it around, and she doesn't want to be too hard on the king. So she says, well, you know what, king, but you're a very wise man, and you're a very kind man, you're a very gracious man, and we know you love us, and we know, we, you, know, we, we know you love the Lord, and we know that you are, are a good man. And to all of this, what happens in verses 18 and 19? David sees through, finally, and says, Hey, has Joab put you up to this? To which she says, You caught us. You caught us. And so he says to Joab, in verses 20 through 24, he says, Joab, go and get Absalom. Go and get Absalom again, not asking God, God, what does your word say? How should I approach this issue? What should I do here? And so this is really, in cha from chapter 11 onward, David has, has can constantly fallen into the trap of not seeking sought the Lord's forgiveness, but he's not sought the Lord in any of it. Right in bringing his heart underneath the rule and the reign of the Word of God, in in whether it in in his adultery and his adult in in his uh, in his act of of, of violating um, Bathsheba and in his in his act of of murdering Uriah and all of this, God never brought his or David never brought his heart underneath the the Word of God at all. And still here we see David struggling to bring his heart underneath the Word of God because he never asks God. He never calls for Nathan and says, Nathan, what do you think God would have me to do? He never searches the Pentateuch and the writings. He doesn't search the scriptures to say, what God should I do here? He simply says, you caught me, let's go, let's bring back Absalom. But the difficulty with this is, by David continually not seeking the Lord, he constantly falls into this trap over and over again, where, he, where one sin leads him to another sin, which leads him to another sin, which leads him to another sin, which ultimately culminates in Absalom's absolute rebellion and David's almost death because of Absalom. And if it had not been... For Ahithophel's advice being thwarted by God, David would have paid for his, 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 his foolish decisions with his life. And yet God was merciful, as we'll see. And so he makes a command. Okay, you know what, Joab? Go get him. Joab's like, thank you, thank you, king, thank you, let's go. And so he comes back, but there's really no reconciliation at this point. David just simply says, okay, he can come back, but he's not to see my face. Which leads us to the second point, and this really leads us into chapter 15, which is this, forgiveness without repentance breeds contempt. Forgiveness without repentance breeds contempt. In 25 through 33, we see Absalom acting with complete contempt for everybody. We have Absalom acting with complete contempt toward Joab. We have Absalom acting with complete contempt toward David. 
We have Absalom acting in complete contempt toward the righteous judgment that should be upon him. He doesn't care that he should be dead because of his act against his brother Amnon. Right? He, 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 should, he, should, he should have died. He doesn't care. And as a matter of fact, we are told that because of this, because of this acting without clear guidance from God's word, we have the growing popularity of Absalom without repentance. In chapter, tw- chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, you see this. Right? Look, look what it says. And, and don't miss this. I like, well, sometimes we skip over this, but don't skip over this. But listen to what the text tells us. God has recorded this for us that we can see the folly and the foolishness of what's happening here. In 25, but in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. Man, people love beautiful politicians, don't they? They really do. Because it says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he shaved his head, right, it weighed out uh, this massive amount of 200 shekels after the king's weight. And it even says that not only was he beautiful, but his entire family was beautiful. And the nation of Israel loved them as a result of their beauty. He found favor, growing favor in the king's kingdom, all the while plotting the king's demise. The problem of his growing popularity without repentance is that he's admired for his physical attributes. He's blessed with a beautiful family. But in all of this, no one is saying the absolute clear elephant in the room thing God's forgiveness demands sin to be dealt with God's forgiveness demands sin to be dealt with Christian if there's going to be biblical reconciliation in our lives biblical reconciliation cannot occur as long as we deny that there was even an offense now, look, I, I don't know about your family, but in my family, I will tell you that when someone did something wrong in my family, and I mean my broader family, right, when, when there was enough time had passed uh, in my family, uh, whether it was an aunt or an uncle or, or a great aunt or great uncle or, or, or someone else uh, that happened, some, something had happened and they did something they weren't supposed to, sort of brought shame on the family, after enough time had passed, we just sort of let them all come back into the family, and then we acted like nothing was ever wrong. Well, that's not real repentance, and it's not real reconciliation. And in this case, that's the same. There was just there was a long line. There was a long time in which 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 in which they said, "Well, you know what? We think maybe enough time has passed. Let's just sort of let it all go, and we'll not really we'll not really uh, we'll just deny the offense we'll just we'll just ignore the offense we'll not deal with the offense at all because after all we don't want to deal with any more strife we don't want to deal with any more problems we don't want to deal with any more issues we don't want to deal with anything else that's going to cause conflict and as a result Absalom's ambition and self-will runs amok and Christian I would say to us if as long as we refuse to deal with our relationships biblically we allow selfish ambition and self-will to run amok in our relationships and in the lives of others. If we truly love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We will hold one another accountable. We will lovingly hold one another accountable, not holding our sins over our heads. But when we have sinned, we will, we will be honest and truth, truthful about it. And we'll say, look, brother, sister, you need to own this. You need to accept this. You need to repent of this. Because guess what? Absalom, because his sin is never dealt with, ends up treating people like pawns. And even his own father, he, he treats his own father as he's expendable to his ultimate purpose in life. He didn't come humbled and broken. He came proudly, making demands. Absalom has no regard for the word of God or the law of God. Absalom comes making demands and setting the terms of reconciliation. Hey, pal, you sinned. You don't get to do that. And yet oftentimes we allow in our own relationships this type of reality, don't we? We let people make demands of reconciliation when God says, no, you don't get to make the demands here. I set the terms. God sets the terms. God is the one that does this. God is the one who says you must submit your heart and mind and life under the word of God and the will of God. Submit it to the law of God. Because in the end, brothers and sisters, it's because we love others that we realize that unrepentant hearts lead to unrepentant lives. And what I mean by that is it's very clear from Absalom and his example here his unrepentant heart leads to frustration when he doesn't get his way. And so in reality, Absalom's acting like a spoiled brat. And so Absalom does what any two-year-old would do. He throws a temper tantrum. Except this man isn't a two-year-old and he's far more dangerous. And so he sends to Joab two times. He says, come, I want to send you to the king on my behalf. Joab says, no. So what does Absalom do? He says, hmm, well, let's get his attention. And so he burns his barley fields to the ground. He says, you're not going to come to me. I'll make you come, and I'll make you talk to me, and I'll make you do what I want you to do. I'll just burn your entire crop to the ground. And that's exactly what he does. Strategically, he, he commits arson. Again, he doesn't pay for it. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't, there's, no, there's no repercussions for his arson on Joab's fields and burning his fields down. But Joab bows to Absalom's pressure and he presses for restoration with any kind of repentance. In verse 32, and again, there is no remorse for Absalom here. He only wants to get back into the king's court because he's, he's gaining popularity among the people and he wants to get back into the king's court because ultimately he is able to spring the trap by getting back into the king's court. Absalom goes so far as to say, you know what? If there really is something wrong with me, let my father kill me himself. He calls David's bluff. He knows that there's no way David is going to kill him. There's no way David's going to execute him. He loves him too much. And so David's hand is forced by this charade of pretended submission. But Absalom's heart was never truly in reconciling. He, there is no propitiation. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no, there's no sacrifice for the sin that has occurred. And this is a dangerous place when we insist, as, as even as Christians, on reconciling without repentance and dealing with the sin on the idols of our hearts. And yet in all of this, let me show you quickly 
how this points us to Jesus and then how we need to apply this. So I think I've already probably given you quite a bit of application, but I want to apply this in a couple other ways. It says, here is Jesus, I think one way that this text points us to Jesus. One, Jesus is the greater David who is never going to be manipulated. In contrast, Jesus guides his enemies by ordering their steps, numbering their days, and ultimately controlling their destinies in perfect fulfillment of his perfect will. David is, is, is manipulated by his enemy and for his own purposes, but Jesus sovereignly reigns and rules over his enemies. Jesus is the greater David who will never forget God's word, who will never fail, right? We see Jesus even in the garden in the New Testament praying, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus is the greater king, is the fulfillment of all of God's word, and is himself the truth incarnate. David, the king, tried to show mercy by ignoring justice. Jesus, the king, embodies mercy by embracing the injustice of the cross to proclaim justice Justice upon uh, justice in the righteousness of in the in God's righteousness and in the payment of sins. This is the heart of the contrast, right? That we should draw between I think David and Jesus in this passage. David is merciful in an unjust way by being merciful to Absalom in a way he should have never been. It was cheap grace that David gave Absalom. The crime for murder was never punished. Justice was never done. The sin to Tamar was never atoned for. This entire ordeal is filled with injustice. And this is not the kind of mercy that God has poured out upon us in Christ. The mercy that God has poured out upon us in Christ cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. It cost him the agony of enduring the totality of God's righteous and just wrath against sin for the sake of sinners. But Christ has triumphed through, his, through the resurrection of the dead and he proclaims mercy to those who will repent and believe the gospel. So how does this apply? Well, quickly, let me say this. One, God possesses love and justice equally and it will, he will never sacrifice one for the other. He will never sacrifice justice for the sake of love. After all, that really wouldn't be love, would it? God's only plan for reconciliation then is through the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world to, rec- to rescue exiled sinners not by overlooking sin, not by not requiring recon- true biblical reconciliation, but rather by shedding his own blood on the cross. He suffered the just penalty that our sin, yours and mine, deserved. And it's only through faith in Christ that we are reconciled to a right relationship with him. And so the gospel then is the good news that we proclaim to sinners who are in need of the gospel, who are in need of a right relationship with God. We we have the gospel that that we proclaim to sinners to come, to be saved, to, 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 to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Let me close out by simply showing you, I think, three more real quick applications. One, never put your ultimate trust in men. They will let you down every time. I think there's another one. Beware of those who flatter you. I have always found that the first to flatter you are the first to kick you out the door. The first to tell you how great you are is the first to tell you how bad you really are. And finally this, though the wicked may seem to prosper for a season, the Lord has ultimately ordained their end. And it will end in destruction if they do not repent and believe the gospel. Christian, let us look to Christ.
for all of our relationships and in all of our relationships, insisting upon biblical reconciliation, insisting upon true righteousness in our relationships, that Christ may be glorified, that God may be honored. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you that ultimately our relationships have been renewed in Christ, our hearts have been renewed, our minds have been renewed in Christ. And as a result, our relationships are able to be made new in Christ and walk a new path for relationships and reconciliation and repentance and grace and mercy. Lord, remembering that you have been gracious and merciful to us, but God, never allowing for sin and injustice to reign without ever calling sin, sin, and insisting on biblical reconciliation. Oh God, help us to be faithful, not because we're mean, not because we're harsh, not because we're, we're hard people, but because we know what happens and what true love is and what happens when people truly don't repent. So let us insist upon your word in all of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.